Hey, I'm Mike Joseph, and thank you for listening to Detoxicity, a show by men, about men, but for everyone. I hope you enjoy the content of this podcast, and I want to let you know about a few things you can do to support us and our mission to challenge traditional notions of masculinity and create a more communicative, positive, and loving environment for all. You can subscribe to Detoxicity on any podcast platform that you use to listen. We are available just about everywhere. Also, don't hesitate to rate and comment as these help us move up in the podcast rankings. I'm on social media, or at least I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Feel free to drop me a follow. Now I have a Patreon page, yay! And uh, Patreon gives you the opportunity to get cool merch and exclusive episodes of this podcast in exchange for subscribing. Go to patreon.com slash detoxicitypod to find out more. Uh, finally, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether you found an episode of the podcast particularly enjoyable or enlightening, or you know someone who'd be a great guest, or you'd like to offer constructive criticism, or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, hit me up. Reach out to me at one of the aforementioned social media channels, or if you're old school like I am, drop me an email, detoxpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and take care. Hey folks, before we get started, I want to offer a content warning for this episode and let you know that there will be descriptions of sexual and physical abuse uh, detailed in this particular episode of Detoxicity. My guest this episode is Tyler Gobble, who is a poet and educator originally from and now currently based in Indiana. Uh, Tyler and I discuss his upbringing in a rural environment and how that has led to a bit of dissonance in his adult life. Uh, we also talk a lot about mental illness, which is the crux of this episode, and uh, how it has been a contributing factor in mistreatment of himself and of others. Uh, I think Tyler's story is best told by the person experiencing it, or who has experienced it, and uh, I'm a bit wary of over-editorializing here, uh, so I think the best thing for everybody to do is to let me shut up and let Tyler talk. So here we go. My name's Tyler Gobble. For a long time, I was a poet and a teacher. I always say in a past life, but it was like eight years ago. And then some mental illness and the journey with that took me in a different direction. And to borrow some language from Ram Dass, I kind of went from trying to be somebody to learning how to be nobody. And I'm kind of happy being nobody. So now I think of it less in terms of labels and roles and more in terms of activity and the things that I'm doing. I meditate a lot. I do a lot of yoga. I, do, I go to a lot of trivia. I'm starting a trivia podcast. Right. I sit on the porch a lot. Those kind of things. Right on. So where did you grow up? I'm from a small town, about an hour north of Indianapolis. It's called Elwood. I lived there all growing up. And then I went to college over in Muncie at Ball State, and that was my first outside of my little small town. I always ask this question because I did not grow up in a small town. I grew up in a big ass city and I've always lived in relatively big cities. So I have no big ass city. I, well, currently I live in New York, but I've lived in Detroit. I've lived in Boston. So every place that I've lived has been a metropolitan area or a suburb close to a metropolitan area. Coming from someone who grew up in a small town, what was your experience? Well, I didn't really realize that it was odd or difficult until I left. And so I've kind of done this interesting pattern where I grew up in this town, went to Muncie, which is a medium-sized city for college, went back to Elwood, then went to Austin, Texas for grad school, 
and then went back to Elwood. <laughs> and now I live in Indianapolis. So, so I've been able to see both sides of it. It's both isolating and comforting. And I was very lucky because my mom's a school teacher and she'd lived her whole life there. My grandparents had lived their entire life in this town. So people knew me the moment I was born. <laughs> but then also I, I missed out on, like, I didn't know people of other races. I didn't know other cultures. I didn't know art museum or a record store, these things until college yeah and so i was playing catch up in my early 20s i had a lot of conversations in college where people would be talking about something that for someone like you who grew up in a city might be common knowledge and then me being like yeah i know that <laughs> but it's like i didn't know that right so in some ways it was playing catch up but i i keep going back too what is uh, it that pulls you back in it's the comfort it's it's the space i was very lucky we had a family farmhouse that when I moved back from Austin was empty. And so I moved into that and I just had this house two miles out of town. So not only was I in a small town, I was two miles outside of that small town. Jesus. Yeah. A town that's like four, three miles by three miles, three miles long by three miles wide. And then I'm two miles north of that. Wow. So I, I did that for two and a half years. And what drove me back was just family and kind of, wanting to try to experience that small town life knowing what i know now right try to take some of that culture with me I do collage sometimes or i used to and i did a collage show there and like no one had ever seen like weird shit like that yeah right so when you go back home now is there a sense of like this guy's different because he's gone out into the world and seen things I think this is a theme of of my whole life is I've always lived in this weird contradictory. So I'm part hick, but part hips, hipster. So I'm like a, hip, a hickster. Hickster, I guess. Uh, yeah. And I was always pulled towards arts and cultures and cities and stuff like that. But then I also love that comfort of the small town. And so it's funny when I grew up, I was the sissy boy. I was the weenie boy. All those terms that we shouldn't use. And I was really sensitive and I like to read and all that stuff. But then I go to Austin and I'm seen as this rough and tumble hick. And I'm like, wait a second. All those rough and tumble hicks I knew said I was like you. And now you're saying I'm like them. And so there's this weird identity crisis. Of yeah. Like, this group of people is telling me I'm like the other people and this group's telling me I'm like them. And so it's still kind of that way when I go back, it's depending on who I'm with, right? Like if I'm with blue collar people and I start talking about being on a podcast about toxic masculinity, they're like, I don't know what to do with that. Right. And then if I go with my more liberal circle and I start telling stories from my childhood that I think are just normal stories and their eyes are like the size of dinner plates. <laughs> like, what is this? Right. So sometimes it feels like I can't find a level of ground to stand on. So I think that's kind of why I've gravitated toward activities over roles or labels, because none of the labels stick very tight. The things I do are what interests me anyways. I get that. And I relate to that in a lot of ways, maybe not in the exact same ways that you do. For sure. Because I don't have the experience of having grown up in a small town or mm -hmm. in... But I think that 
labeling people is easy, right? You look at a guy, you look at a girl, you look at a person, and you look at the people that they hang out with, the way that they speak, the things that they enjoy, and you're like, that person is a blank. Right. But the reality is that we all contain multitudes. Many of us, most of us are not as simple as outward appearances and a 20-minute conversation is going to reveal. So I, I like the fact that you don't label yourself as a thing or a type of person, but more so as your experiences. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll talk about it more, but I've had experiences with those labels, such as poet and teacher, where because of my mental illness, because of some of my behavior within that, those labels kind of got taken away from me without me even having a chance to kind of surrender them. And so it's part survival mode too, not wanting to attach so much to that. And I mentioned Ram Dass earlier, and I've gotten really into his work from the 70s all the way through. And he talks a lot about moving from role to soul and trying to move from this label, this duality, like I'm this or I'm this into this space of just being one's essence. What is that? Like, what's that thing that's flickering behind the eyes? Right. Yeah, that's totally valid. So first part is how did art come into your life? Was that something that you hit college and you were like, oh, this is cool shit? Or were you, well, you said you were an artistic kid or a sensitive um, kid. I was a sensitive kid. I didn't have any models for for art, certainly not for poetry and for writing, but it kind of took off in high school. I was listening to your episode with Chris Gethard and earlier today, and he was talking about the punk community that he kind of grew up in. And I fell in with a group like that as well in the area. And a lot of those kids were into reading and were starting to write and journal and stuff. And that was certainly part of it. But it was really when I hit college at Ball State. I remember I was at one of those activities fairs where all the different sororities and fraternities and sports clubs, they set up their little booths and you go around. It's like in the concourse of the basketball arena and you just walk around and take flyers and whatever. It was like my first week in college. I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> and I just wandered up to this table. They were two cute people. And I was like, you guys look nice. And they started talking to me and they invited me. They were so nice and welcoming and invited me to their first club meeting. And I don't even remember what they told me it was. I just was like, they're nice to me. I'm going. Okay. And so I went and it ended up being the writer's community. And it was a student ran club. They had a great faculty advisor who would just bring writing of their own or of other people that they were excited about and share it every Monday night. And I was hooked both by them sharing which seems so huge to me and then also just learning all this like I was that person that like when I got into pro wrestling when I was in fifth grade I like was all in right and I knew all the details I knew all the information and I had all the action figures and that kind of enthusiasm went into poetry I got excited by that and fast forward I ended up becoming president of that writers community oh wow those people became my closest friends that's where i started hosting poetry readings through that organization yeah it was seeing people my age who were excited about the same things i was i had never really been around that since those early middle school days of being really into pro wrestling or being really into the nba and having the buddies that want to look at basketball cards together sure. or whatever 
that was like the new version of that. Huh. As you're gaining all this information and you go back home, did you feel like this was maybe behavior you had to hide or something you couldn't really talk about to your friends back home or your family? That's still a tricky thing because because of my illness and some of my behavior on that, I got separated from the poetry community about six or so years ago. And I've really struggled to maintain a relationship with poetry without that community. And with something like poetry that's so specific, and especially the kind of poetry I like and write, a little weirder, <laughs> I guess you would say, it's hard to get my mom excited about it or, or my buddy who plays disc golf, right? But there's also those touchstones that everyone can kind of understand. Like when I published my first poem, I was so shocked that all the people who would share it, like my aunt and like, she, I know she didn't read it, but she was excited. She could understand something. You accomplished like something. Getting Accomplishing something. She yeah. could understand that. And I remember my mom shared a poem one time and she said, here's another poem Tyler published. I still don't understand what the hell he's talking about, but I'm really proud of it. And I was like, I'm okay with that. That, yeah. that feels like a fair, both. We're yeah. holding both. There, right. You know? Right. That's a win. That's a win. Yes. And so I've been feeling that lately, missing community in that way, because I'm so community driven and enthusiasm driven. So at what point does your mental health start to become a part of the picture? And I don't know how old you are. 34. Okay. So you're a bit younger than I am. You are almost a full on that person. As opposed to me, who was like a teenager, a late teenager before right. he realized. No, what the I, uh, I ruined two desktop computers as a 14-year-old by looking up porn. There you uh, go. <laughs> <laughs> back before the great virus protection we have now. You are back one of millions. Could, back when, yeah, you could get a virus by just like thinking the word boobs. Yeah, um, I remember those days. Yeah. So... Mental illness and, and mental health is something that is very much stigmatized. But compared to you, who was born in 1989 or 88, whatever, 88. yeah, versus me, who was born in 1976, I think there are two different ideas of, of the allowable discussion of mental health in our generation. So I'm kind of wondering when that came into play for you. Well, first to the generational difference, I see it and I have a half brother who's around your age, he's 10 years older than me. And all the discussions about him and the things he's gone to and his trauma versus the discussion about me and my stuff, even within our own family, the conversation is really different, even though we're very similar in what we're dealing with. And so, yeah, I think that's certainly part of it. But the conversation itself is my parents, my dad's from North Carolina and the hills and my mom's from rural Indiana. They didn't have a good system. They didn't have any models. I think of it in that way. I think of it in terms of models in the way I didn't have any art models. When I was a kid, as they were learning how to be parents, they didn't have any models on how to talk to me about these things. Right. Right. And so a lot of it was more reactionary than responsive, was less concerned with taking care of the root of the problem and just like tampering down the flames of whatever's happening at the time and never really fixing the core. Mm. And when I started having 
mood swings and strange anger outbursts and stuff when I was like 10. But it was always just calm down, Tyler, which was helpful when you're. (laughs) (laughs) That works every time. It works every single time. It was always calm down. Quit acting like a baby. That's a good one, too. That's very oh, helpful. Embarrass us. Don't, yeah, and don't make a scene. Yeah. Uh, don't make a scene. Because I have bipolar disorder and borderline personality disorder. And one of the things is, with both of those, is having heightened oversized reactions mm-hmm. to things that the outside world seems small. Mm-hmm. Right? But what I have learned and have tried to explain to my parents and other people who care about me is, it's still real to me, right? It feels big to me, so it is big to me. And so that's the thing we have to address. Yeah, and so that happened for a long time, and then it was just kind of written off as being related to some things that had happened in my childhood. So there's really four big events that happened before the age of 10 that kind of led up to this. Oh, wow. And I didn't find out about this until about a year ago, but of when I was an infant, I was molested by a family member. Jesus. But I never knew that. But obviously that's in there. Right. And that's in here. When I was four and my brother was 14, he, without me knowing why or really explaining to me, he was just sent back to live with his birth mother in North Carolina. Okay. And so I went from having a brother to having this void. Right. And... Matt even got trickier too because I found out he was gay. So it was kind of explained to me that that's the reason he was sent away. Oh boy. So then that was like, I don't know what to do with that, especially as I was processing my own and coming into my own sexuality later on as a teenager. Sure. And so that was tricky. But the weirdest one was in back to back years, I had premonitions about who I was close with, my uncle and my grandma, about them dying, mm-hmm. and they died the next day. Oof. Um, oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to get into that too much because I know it can get really strange and scary, but yeah. So I didn't know what to do with that. When I'm nine years old, right? And this has happened to me two years in a row. And what do you do <laughs> with those premonitions like that? And so I just became very moody and unruly and angry. And I was never really taught how to process that and deal with that root cause, right? And so that's what I'm doing now when I'm in On one hand, so many things that I want to say with, with respect to everything you just said. One, it's a lot. And for one of those things to happen to a child, I think would be transformative be something that that person is dealing with for the rest of their lives for you to have multiple things happen to you and for you to acknowledge that and be working on bettering yourself i think it speaks highly to you because even with all of the knowledge that we have at our disposal about trauma and how it affects people I think there are more people who have gone through things like this that have not processed that or have not started mm-hmm. to process it than there are people who have acknowledged and are trying to process it. Yes. Father Richard Rohr, I'm not a Christian, but he's a Catholic friar sure. that I admire a lot. And he says, true change only comes through great love or great suffering. And I think often it takes both. Yeah. And I had gotten to the point where so many people that I was in love with 
I had hurt or I was scaring or had drove away. And that was causing me great suffering. And I was tired of causing other suffering. So at some point, you just got to say enough's enough, right? And, and Again, I got to give you props for that because I don't think a lot of people even get to that point. I think it becomes a snowball and mm-hmm. people don't know how to stop it. Yeah, that's true. Especially when you throw in coping, like substance abuse. Right. Or you throw in all these different other ways to kind of numb the pain, which I struggle with just like anyone. Because I'm really in the midst. Yeah. By no means through this. Yeah. Um, I don't know that there is a through or recovered. I think we're processing all this shit. We're evolving until the day we die. Right. My friends who are in AA haven't had a drink in 20 years still refer to themselves as an alcoholic. Right. 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 I think I will always in some ways be mentally ill. And that's its own thing to take a breath and accept. But I think to your point with putting in the work, I think also I got to give credit to the life circumstances that pushed me toward it. So I had a situation. Is it okay if I tell this? Story? Yes, yeah, it's I, your I, story. I told you privately, but I'll just tell a quick version of it because I don't want to drag anyone else into this. So I, I had a psychotic episode in the spring of 2014 where I physically assaulted my girlfriend. I don't have any memory of that experience, which of course doesn't excuse it, but it is the context of it. And it happened. And then it was this whirlwind of trying to figure out what to do. And then we both kind of just ignored it for a while. And then we broke up, continued to kind of, ignored doing the little things, going to therapy, started an antidepressant, doing these little things, but still never really saying it out loud, being open about it like I should have. And then in the fall of 2016, that person that I hurt, she published an essay using my full name about that experience. And so that was kind of the moment where it took me a while to get to this, but I'm grateful for that in some ways because it 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 knocked me off my bullshit. It it forced me to come to terms with what had happened, the possibility of it happening again, and most importantly, figuring out how to make sure it doesn't happen again. And so again, trying to get to that root cause. And that was that that experience as shameful and embarrassing and difficult as it was, gave me a freedom to, again, stop worrying about being somebody. I was still wrapped up in this, I'm going to be this big poet. I'm going to be this awesome teacher. And I, it took all that away. I got canceled. And, and when you're canceled, you have a lot of free time. <laughs> and so all that energy I was putting into writing poems and teaching poetry and all that, I started putting into figuring out what the root cause of this was. So how do you go about that process? Again, a million and one questions I can think of in response to that. And I feel like publicly in instances where we have seen people be accused of some sort of abuse, I feel like the first response is always to go on the defensive. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm wondering, were you like, oh shit, this is public now. What the fuck do I do? Or were you like, okay, now I really need to get help. Just trying to figure out like what your thought process was. It was multifaceted for sure. Right. But cause you have that instinct to, to be like, well, 
that part, that paragraph is different than I would, right. but that's not helpful to what the goal is. The goal is for that other person to heal, for both of us to heal, right? And so I realized that that was part of her healing, whether or not I agreed with the way she did it, that was the step she needed to take at that moment. So I didn't really engage with it very much. I got asked to write a response essay. People were encouraging me to tweet about it or whatever. And I was like, I don't want it to be this battling, this dueling kind of thing. Because my partner that I was with when that happened, who eventually became my wife, who eventually became my ex-wife, she had this really great point. She was saying, I want to love you and support you. And I want to hold your victims hurt at the same time. I want to hold the dignity of that as well. Right. And so she kind of offered me that framework. And so I, as best I can, that's what I try to stick with as I go through this is to hold both my own healing while also acknowledging the chaos and the troubles I have caused with my behavior. And that's really hard to do because ego, ego, (laughs) and I deserved it. I worked hard. I, I deserve my place in the poetry circle. I'm a great teacher. I deserve to be a teacher. And that was not the path that was available anymore. Right. I mean, Um, when, when you fuck up, you got to take responsibility for your fuck up. And you're also not in control of what the punishment for that fuck Mm -hmm. up is. Yeah. Another spiritual thing from Ramdas, but he talks about so much of our suffering, especially in the West, where we have a lot of things taken care of, comes from wanting things to be different than they are. That's it. And John Kabat-Zinn says that healing is coming to terms with things as they are. Where did this come from? Why am I behaving this way? Coming to terms with things as they are. And what kind of situations are conducive to making sure this kind of stuff doesn't happen anymore? Right. Right. Which is an ongoing struggle because I still have anger outbursts. I, I still have big mood swings. Luckily, I don't have psychotic episodes like I used to with my medication. But yeah. I I wanted to ask about the anger. I also deal with anger issues, but I think the difference between us is that my anger is very, very internalized. I mean, I have not physically hit somebody in 25 years. But you know, what I don't think some people understand is I'm sure there are plenty of people, maybe the majority of people in the world who don't get the urge. Right. I get the urge to smack the shit out of people on a somewhat regular (laughs) basis. And I'm saying it in kind of a joking fashion, but there have been times when I've literally had to stick my hands in my pockets and ball my fists up and walk away. Right. And I've broken chairs. I've broken computers. I've broken doors. I've punched holes in walls. I've done all that stuff. And it is very hard. I think for people who never have instances or very rarely have instances of that level of anger Mm -hmm. to understand where that comes from. Yeah. Or how people who repress it deal with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because without experience, it, you only see the outward demonstration of it. You only see the broken chair. You only see the yelling. You only see the face. But you don't see what's going on inside. And what's going on inside is often based around fear, is based around confusion. 
mine is a lot with confusion, but I'll explain it in a sec. But David White, the poet, calls anger an internal incoherence. And I always have liked that where it's that fluster. <laughs> you get flustered where it really is. Yeah. Think about and, the terminology, the term seeing red. Mm-hmm. Like your mind is incapable of coherence. You're just seeing a color. All the words blend together, all the thoughts blend together, or blind rage. Right. And what's really scary about that, I think for a lot of people, and certainly for me, is that it kind of just overtakes you. I go from zero to 60, like a snap. I can't snap very well. And it just happens. And it's never the situation you would think. It's so unpredictable. So I have to always be on guard. And that's exhausting. But it's better than freaking out in public every three days like I used to. I hadn't had a public anger outburst in like two years. I had one two weeks ago. So that sucks right Uh, but you hop back on the horse and keep riding yeah and start the streak over right right Um, yeah but i think a lot of people when you don't experience something you're going off what you see but anger is not the projection of it actual emotion yeah it's the thing that's happening internally and it's so powerful and david white talks about this in that same piece about that i said the internal incoherence thing it's coming from love a great love so often our anger comes from wanting the world to be better, wanting this situation, wanting the person you're angry with to be better, wanting yourself to be better. And it just gets muddled. Yeah. Uh, and it's really weird, but it's the struggle. And what's so funny, and I, I get a sense that you probably get this too, is when someone sees my anger for the first time, they're really extra thrown off, even if they have heard me talk about things like this, because it's so different than my default setting, yep. I guess. Yep. Which I hope is generous and kind and patient and all those. So that contrast can be a lot as well. No, I, I relate to that. Like I come across, I don't come across, generally speaking, I'm an anxious person, but it is all internalized. The impression people get from me is that I'm calm, that I'm relaxed, and I'm very even-tempered, like nice guy, whatever. Yeah. So when that flip gets switched, I, I, I understand where you're coming from. People are all of a sudden like, oh, shit, we fucked up. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it's wild. My first diagnosis was dissociative identity disorder, multiple personality disorder. Okay. Because my episodes were so... My face changes, my tone of voice changes, my vocabulary changes. And so my therapist thought I was literally had multiple personalities. Like I was switching between the personalities, but it ends up that it's just basically I, I still throw hissy fits like a five-year-old. I still have that confusion and frustration and that's what happens to me. And I, I'm learning how to deal with that now. What are some ways that you've figured out to deal with it? That's a really great question. And in rooms culture, they talk about set and setting, right? Having the right mindset and being in the right environment to have a good mushroom trip. Sure. Well, I think of that for my whole life. I need to maintain a 
the right mindset and I need to be in the right environment. So it's checking like, are these environments that are too stimulating, too pressurized? And so that's avoiding those. And then also just being really super mindful. That's why my mindfulness practice has been so important to me, becoming super mindful of the way my mind is working, the mindset that I'm finding myself in and the things that help with that. And so meditation has been huge because I'm learning how to separate from my own thoughts. I'm not my thoughts. These are things that happen, right? It's been described as you are the sky and everything else is the clouds, right? Sure. Or remember the old school projectors in school with the lamination? Oh yeah. Right. You're the light of that projector. And then your moods and your thoughts and your feelings are the, the lamination that's thrown on top of it. Mm. Right. And so using that, cause I struggle with intrusive thoughts as well. I struggle with suicidal thoughts. And so being able to separate from those. And so every time I have a, a quote unquote bad thought, I can't get bogged down <laughs> and be like, I'm a horrible person. Cause I thought about this instead of being like, okay, that's popped up. That's in the ether. Let's watch it go by and move on to the next thing. And so just really being deliberate and slow and mindful with the way I'm engaging with my thoughts. Meditation helps that. Yoga helps with that. A lot of walks. And then a lot of great conversations like this one. So those are big, been big things. And then routine's a huge one for me. It's really funny. Anytime you see any sort of tips for people with, especially with bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder, but most mental illnesses, it'll have a good routine is usually like the first thing they say, right? You got to have the sleep routine going well and have to have purposeful, meaningful work to have during the day. I don't work a traditional job. So having things to do, I have a meditation group I go to every morning at 10 a.m., and then at noon every day, I go to a yoga class. And that just gives me interactive time with people, mm. gives me mindfulness time, gives me purpose. And so that's been huge. I wonder, how does this experience color your relationships, whether it's relationships with your family, relationships with your close friends, relationships with any intimate partners? How does this history and it's not just history because you're actively in the process of acting with all of these different things. Mm -hmm. Like, how does that affect the relationships that you have? The close ones. Yeah. Well, what's really scary about it is I have a long list of people who have decided this is too much, including my ex-wife. My ex-wife left while I was in a psych ward almost exactly three years ago. And that fear is always there. My parents have shown no indication of giving up on me. Good, as they shouldn't. I have that there, right? Like, when's the shoe going to drop? And they're going to say, this is enough, right? I'm in my first serious relationship since my wife left. And my girlfriend's taken on a lot of this role of being my support system. But several other people have done that in the past as well. And eventually decided it was too much and left, which good on them for taking the steps they need to, to do that. Right. Of course. But that fear is still there. So that always clouds it. But 
love caring for people, right? You, I hope maybe we'll talk about this, but you've been going through a big thing in your life and just me sending you an Instagram message. I want to do that for you, but also it feels good for me to check on you and to care for you. And so on a larger scale, my family, my sports system is really taking the reins of learning about this and finding new ways to support me and all that. When my ex-wife left, my mother in her mid-60s became my number one person the first time since I was a kid. And so she had to relearn how to mother me. I needed that care, that really close care. And she was reading books, signing up for email lists, and putting in the work. But it's not forever, and it's not for always, I don't think. It is a really hard task. It's a tough ask. But the people who are doing it right now, my gal pal and my parents are really committed. And I think that's what it takes. Maybe this is an issue on my part, but I can't help but hear what you're saying. And I'm relating it back to me. <laughs> no, it's a privileged position from me in a lot of ways. Right. Because not everyone has that support system. Right. Or that support system looks different. You know, but I also think about friends that I've had people that I've dated who, and I'm open about my issues with mental illness. I have a whole fucking podcast about it. And you know, I've had people say, Mike, you're too much. It's too much. Yep. It's too much. And there is a part of me that wants to be angry at that. Uh-huh. But at the same time, I get it. I mm-hmm. understand that loving somebody and caring for somebody who as a friend or as a romantic partner, as a sexual partner, whatever, caring for somebody who has, who, and this is where I'm going to make a distinction. Someone who is open about the things that they go through, as opposed to someone who is going through that stuff, but hides it. Yes. Dealing with someone who is open with all that stuff can be difficult. Particularly if you're at the introduction of it, if you're at the beginning of it, it can be a really weird undertaking to be like, holy shit, I like this person, but what am I getting myself into? Yes. That's why I think, like, again, coming to terms with things as they are, being as clear about this is where I'm at, this is what's going on. With my ex-wife, on our first date, I told her about what had happened with my ex. Good God. And I just made that my like this is a thing that happened especially if you're a person that's going to be in an intimate space with me I feel like you should know this right and I, um, I respect that radical honesty I think most people yeah, would be like whoa that. that's too fucking much but I appreciate that level of radical honesty well because if you if you can't get down with that it's not going to work because that's a big part of the deal right <laughs> that is the thing that we're dealing with and I think of it on my end I I want to know what people's issues and struggles and if I'm going to commit to being a large part of their life and the support for them, I need to have all the information so I can be my best self as well. Right. Right. So I want to give my partner and my parents as much information because I hid it from my parents for a long time and that didn't help because then they go, well, we didn't know it was this bad. And I said, well, yeah, I, I didn't tell you. I was trying to protect you. But it didn't really help. We ended up in the same place having to deal with it. Right. And they were just less prepared than they could have been. Yeah. So. Hmm. How am I going to phrase this question? Do you feel like more people have gravitated to you as a result of your honesty or that more people have kind of 
backed away because of it? Both, of course. I think I've had a lot of people just ghost me. I It happened with the poetry community. I had hundreds of people I knew and people I considered friends and who visited me. And, and then when that essay came out, it was nothing. It was even people that I had told that story to in private, which once it was public, changed their mind and just like, I can't handle this. This is too much. And most of them just ghosted me and they didn't tell me. Mm. The ones that I appreciate are the ones that say, that's a lot. I'm not in a space to have that or to deal with that. Best of luck to you. Right. I have huge respect for that. But I'm surprised every day by the people who confide in me about their own mental health struggles or someone in their family asking for, like, I heard you post something about therapy on Instagram. I've never been to therapy, but it's something I'd like to do. How do you do that? And that's a great role for me to fill because I have a lot of experience <laughs> going to therapy and I can do that. Yeah. And the, and the amount of people who have come back around to me has been really amazing. I had a really close friend in, when I lived in Austin, Michael. And towards the end of my time in Austin, I was pretty all over the place and his dad passed away. And he just couldn't handle it. He couldn't juggle supporting me. He was one of my support people and dealing with his own grief. And so we took some time apart. And then about three years later, I was visiting Austin and I just happened to say, hey, I'm in town if you'd like to reconnect. And we reconnected and we're back to the way we were because he's in a better place. I'm in a better place and we can fully support each other. I think hopping into something because you should or because it feels like the thing you're supposed to do if you're not ready to support someone there's no shame in that right like, don't do it half-assed yeah if you do um, it half-assed it's gonna end up messy on both sides it's gonna mess up everybody yeah. so so that radical honesty seems like a great method and i think it can be inspirational i think speaking about my experiences in the mental health system mm -hmm. speaking about the shit that i go through speaking about all of that stuff i think has given other people license to be like, oh, well, this is something I've thought about. This is something I go through. Maybe this is something I should explore. So I do think that there's bravery in taking these topics that are super taboo. Yeah. And kind of normalizing them. Yes. Well, here's the thing, Mike. Life is embarrassing. <laughs> it really is. Being alive is so embarrassing. We're just full of mucus and we're decaying and our brains malfunction and our organs malfunction. And we're just a mess, right? We don't really know what's going on here. We don't really know how we got here. We barely know what to do while we're here. And so we're already in this fucking conundrum. We might as well play the game in the best way we can play it. Amen and, to that. And being honest and open and communicating is clearly one of the better ways to do it, even though it is hard. But I'm just predisposed to doing it, I guess. And I it goes back to that essay, that freedom, when all of my secrets and the things I'm most ashamed of is out in the open for anyone to Google me and find. And anyone listening to this can do it. Then... 
it lets me off the hook in some way. You have nothing like, to hide what, anymore. Why am I going to be embarrassed about this thing when that is already out there? Right. 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 So there's a weird freedom in that. I understand. And there's got to be a conversation about canceling and uncanceling or whatever that means. I, I was having a conversation with a coworker maybe two weeks ago and they were like, nobody ever really gets canceled, which I don't totally believe. If you look at examples in the public, Louis CK is on tour selling out arenas. Yep. And I'm not saying that that's the way it should be. Right. But also I think that in a lot of these conversations, things like context and nuance get removed and I also think that people have a hard time differentiating between someone who does a bad thing or bad things mm-hmm. versus bad people. Yep. And I'm sitting here talking to you yep. as someone who did something that I absolutely do not condone at all. Yeah, and, I don't condone it either. Right. And look, when we first started talking, I had a, a tiny crisis of conscience. And I was thinking about it, and I, I was thinking about it more from a context of, what will people think yep. if I put him on this show versus do I want to put him on the show? Mm-hmm. And the answer to do I want him on the show was always yes. Thank you. And as far as what people think, people draw their own conclusions. I can't go in anybody's head. And right. if you think that I'm an asshole for doing this episode, so be it. But I do think, look, I think we all have situations, things that we've done that were regretful and came from a time when we didn't know better, whether it's an issue of not knowing better as a general rule or just not knowing ourselves well enough to not do that kind of behavior. Yeah, it really comes down to, for me, when I think about these situations, I'm a big believer in we punish behavior. We don't punish people. If my behavior was a problem to the poetry community, which that's up for debate because I had never had any sort of episodes in the poetry scene. Uh, it was all domestic situation. But if my behavior is a problem, then that behavior should be removed. Right. I should not be able to be in those spaces and have power in the because I was editing and I was running a reading series. And so let's remove that. I also think, what's the goal? The goal is to not have behavior like this. And no one gets better in exile. No one gets better alone. And so I lost my community that could have helped me get better in some ways as well. And luckily I had other communities. Like my ex-wife, she was in the theater scene. And weird, oddly, the theater scene her friends kind of rallied around me and and held me accountable in their own way and i was having conversations with me about these things but i kind of lost my train of thought (laughs) yeah well uh, i get what you're saying it's like how do you learn if everybody that can teach you runs away when something happens exactly can i just say that and when you edit it (laughs) you're you're exactly right and (laughs) this is the weird situation i'm in is that that incident was nine years ago Right. That essay came out in 2016. So that's seven, six and a half years ago. What do I do? Is there a time again where I can publish, where I can try to be in the poetry or am I just gone forever? Right. And there's no guidebook. 
that's the tricky thing. And that's where a lot of situations where there actually is no redemption. There actually is no relation because it's just like, you're bad, go away. And I, I don't know if that's good for anyone. It's not good for anyone. And again, I think that there is a, a differentiation, right? There is an instance of bad behavior or there's bad behavior versus bad person. Mm-hmm. And, and I believe most of it, it's bad behavior. I don't know if I believe in bad people. I'm a New Yorker. I'm a lot more cynical than you are. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that some people are irreparable. Sure. Yeah. And maybe that comes from the correct consequences not being applied to their behavior. Maybe that comes from some level of privilege. Maybe it comes from mental yeah. illness. It could come from a variety of different things. You just mentioned mental illness. And of course, I'm always going to perk up at that. Yeah, I think that's another conversation. How does mental illness factor in? How do we contextualize based on mental illness while not letting people get away with things? Right. Well, and that's where the behavior part, like emphasizing the behavior over the person seems really important to me. My gal pal Beth does a really good job of when I have little episodes or mood swings or whatever, separating Tyler, the person from Tyler, that's the body that's carrying out that behavior. Yeah. And how do we talk about that? Cause we're too quick sometimes to say, well, that person's mentally ill. We can't judge them. Can't blame them. I think you can do both. I think we can hold both. I think. New oh, right? 100%. We can hold both. Right. Uh, And I think that's the goal. I think even as mentally ill people, I mean, we have common sense. And again, mental illness isn't the same from human to human to human. But if I punch somebody in the face, I expect to get held accountable for punching somebody in the face. I can't be like, I'm depressed. So excuse (laughs) me for punching somebody in the face. Yeah. I expect to get dealt with in a way that someone who punches somebody in the face would get dealt with. Uh, At the same time, if I punch somebody in the face, I wouldn't want the discussion to then become, Mike's a violent person all the time, stay away from him. Right. Because, again, we're human, there's context, there's nuance, and you have to do that when dealing with people in very specific situations. I want to put a disclaimer, because I'm talking about some of these things for the first time in this way. Right. Vulnerable. So I'm going to have a vulnerability hangover because I've never <laughs> talked about these. But no, I get it. But I feel like I'm saying it over and over, but it's about holding both. That nuance of we can say this is a bad thing that happened and this is still a person who clearly is lacking something and how can we support them and making sure this doesn't happen again. There's a word. I want to say it's duality, but I'm not 100% sure that Mm -hmm. that's the correct word. But I feel like we as a society are not very good at being able to hold multiple truths to a situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh. (laughs) Yeah, it's really hard. Because actually duality is saying good versus bad. It's more of a non-dual mindset that says let's hold it all right that's what buddhism is trying to teach us that's what ramdas was trying to teach us that's what most hippies are trying to teach teach us us all of it at once yeah i guess what i'm trying to say is that we're not as a society very good at non-binary thinking yep something must be good or it must be bad 
they must be pure or they must be evil. And reality is that so much shit just is kind of floating around in the middle and it's on a continuum, right? And I feel like objectively, we should all realize that. But I look at myself and it took me fucking 35 years to real come to this realization. But I, I think we're always so quick to judge and so quick to make some kind of determination on a situation that we forget that full truths can exist at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. It's about space. I think it's that mindfulness again that's been helping me with that of just when someone acts a way that I don't agree with or I that makes me uncomfortable or whatever, choosing not to engage with that as much and giving it the space like that's what's going on over there and I can't change that. Again, that suffering comes from me wanting it to be differently. So I'm learning that so much doesn't involve me at all, so I'm just going to say the fuck out of it. <laughs> You're way ahead of me there, man. Yeah. It's hard. It's really hard. Yeah. I want to thank Tyler for sharing his story. Uh, this couldn't have been easy talking about uh, the stuff that he talked about, uh, all of it. Um, it's pretty heavy and uh, grateful for the fact that you were so open and honest about your journey and uh, your wrongs and the progress that you're making to correct those wrongs. And uh, I wish you the best uh, and uh, continued upward movement. And uh, I know it's a struggle, as it is for so many of us. Uh, so, um, again, thank you for sharing your story. Folks, if you want to check Tyler out on social media, he is available. Available? Is that the right word? He is on Instagram at your buddy TGOB. So uh, check him out there and look out for his trivia-related podcast coming soon. Thank you for listening to Detoxicity. I hope you found this particular episode interesting. And if you are new, I hope you go back and listen to all of the older episodes. Uh, once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this show. And uh, there are a lot of things that you can do to continue to support our mission, continue to support this podcast. Uh, follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, Twitter, and I'm on TikTok as DetoxPodGuy. Uh, you can also send me an email if you'd like. I'm at detoxpod at gmail.com. I am always on the hunt for people with interesting, inspirational, and powerful stories. So if you know somebody who fits that bill or if you yourself fit that bill, please don't hesitate to drop me a line via email or via social media. Uh, please make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform that you're listening to this on. Uh, rate, comment, help a brother out, uh, help us move up in the rankings, uh, follow me on social media, like I said, uh, follow our Patreon, or subscribe to my Patreon, actually, patreon.com slash detoxicitypod, you get access to exclusive episodes, you get episodes a little earlier than the general public, you get a cool-ass sticker, lots of stuff, once again, patreon.com slash detoxicitypod, quick shout out to Calvin Williams for providing the music, and, uh, doing his magic on the logo which was originally designed by jacob block i thank you all for listening i wish you all the best please take care of each other till next time peace